Section 39 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 18 Last Days of Marlborough, Part 2. George I landed in England on August 18th, and Marlborough hastened to join the crowd of peers who were eager to welcome the new king. Marlborough was treated with much distinction, especially by the heir apparent who had served under him at Audenarde. The hopes of the Whigs were speedily realized, for the new government was chosen entirely from their party. Marlborough listened to the entreaties of his friends and consented to resume his former office of captain-general and master of ordnance. Sunderland was made Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and his other sons-in-law, Lord Godolphin and the Earl of Bridgewater, obtained offices about the royal household, whilst his daughter, the Duchess of Montague, was made Lady of the Bedchamber to the Princess of Wales. George I could not avoid treating the great general with honour, but he could not forget his old jealousy of him, and remembered with bitterness how the Duke had absorbed all the honours of the war, whilst he had had only a very secondary part to play. Marlborough soon found that he had no real power in the new government, and that he would no longer be able to play a leading part in public affairs. If we believe the frequent expressions in his letters of longing wishes for peace and retirement, he cannot have regretted this exclusion from public life. He spoke once or twice on military affairs in the House of Lords, and his opinion always carried great weight. In the autumn of 1715, an attempt was made in Scotland and various parts of England to assert the claims of the pretender. Marlborough took part in the preparations made to resist him. He had the pleasure of sending his favourite, General Cadogan, to crush the rising in Scotland, and Cadogan was made a peer on his return. Marlborough's last years were saddened by the death of two of his daughters, Elizabeth, Countess of Bridgewater, a gentle and amiable woman, died in 1714 in her twenty-sixth year, and in April 1716 he had a still greater loss in the death of Anne, Countess of Sutherland, in her twenty-ninth year. Anne was perhaps the most remarkable of his daughters. Beautiful and accomplished, she had shown the most admirable tact and judgment in the way in which she dealt with her husband, one of the most irritable of men, and her mother, one of the most overbearing of women. She had prevented political differences in the family from becoming feuds, and had lived on the most affectionate terms both with her husband and her mother. She left behind a most touching letter for her husband, containing her last wishes. She wished her mother to take care of her girls and the boys who were too young to go to school. The Duchess gladly accepted and made every arrangement for having the children thoroughly cared for. She also showed that she had her soft side by asking Lord Sunderland to let her have some trifle that her dear child used to wear in her pocket, and some little cup that she used to drink out of, and also a lock of her hair. Soon after this great grief, the Duke of Marlborough was attacked by paralysis, but he speedily rallied 
and was able to go to Bath to drink the waters which did him much good. In the autumn he visited Blenheim to see the progress of the works. He had at last undertaken to finish the building at his own expense, but had waited till in the first year of George I an act had been passed declaring the crown responsible for the debts on the building before the works had been suspended. In spite of this act, however, the debts were not all paid. The duke was personally sued for them, and it was not till after his death that the matter was finally settled by the court of chancery and the arrears paid by the government. Meanwhile, the works were carried on at the duke's expense, and the duchess busied herself actively to get them finished. She quarreled with Sir John Vanborough, and after much correspondence between them, the finishing of the building was entrusted to another architect, and actively directed by the duchess herself. Little progress was made till after the duke's death, and though he always took a lively interest in it, it was not possible to settle permanently there, or do more than pay occasional visits. He had collected on the continent many works of art to adorn his palace. It was an age when great attention was given to the art of furnishing and decorating houses, and every rich man was an eager collector of pictures and all kinds of objects of art. Foreign powers were fond of presenting the duke with fine pictures as marks of gratitude for his services. The city of Brussels gave him a magnificent picture by Rubens, the full-length portrait of the painter himself with his wife and child. The emperor gave him two other paintings by Rubens, who was his favorite artist, Venus and Cupid restraining Adonis from the chase, and Lot and his daughters. The Duke of Savoy gave him a set of painted leather hangings representing the loves of the gods, which were long supposed to be by Titian, but were really painted from designs by Perino del Vaga. These have since been destroyed by fire. The Duke bought many pictures himself, amongst others a fine portrait of Charles I by Van Dyck, which he found at Munich. Marlborough House in Pell-Mell was adorned with a series of paintings by a French artist, Laguerre, representing the military exploits of the Duke. Laguerre also painted the ceiling and walls of the inner hall at Blenheim. A series of tapestry hangings were made for the Duke in Flanders, representing his own victories and those of Alexander the Great. Klosterman painted, under the special direction of the Duke, a large family group of the Duke and Duchess and their children, and during the painting of this picture, the artist and the Duchess quarreled so much that the Duke said to him, It has given me more trouble to reconcile my wife and you than to fight a battle. The Duchess had to finish the works begun by the Duke. She added at her own expense the triumphal arch at the entrance and the column in the park bearing the statue of the Duke with the record of his victories at the base. In all, three hundred thousand pounds were spent on the buildings at Blenheim, two hundred and forty thousand of which were supplied by the nation and the remaining sixty thousand pounds by the Duke himself. Marlborough passed the greater part of the last years of his life in retirement. He still attended the sittings of the House of Lords and fulfilled the duties of his offices, but he was without power and in no way possessed the confidence of the king. He lived either in London, in Marlborough House, which had been built in Pell-Mell, or in Holywell House, the first and favorite home of himself and the Duchess, 
or at Windsor Lodge, paying occasional visits to Blenheim to look after the building. He took special interest in the gardens at Blenheim, which he had helped to plan himself. He was fond of riding and driving, and very sociable in his tastes. He liked to be surrounded by his grandchildren and his intimate friends, and amused himself with playing games of cards, ombre, basset, piquet. He took a great deal of interest in the education of his granddaughters. They used to sing and dance before him, and sometimes acted little plays for his amusement. The Duchess was very careful of propriety. She would scratch out some of the most amorous speeches in the plays and allowed no embraces. The splendid brocades which had been got from Brussels as curtains for Blenheim were allowed to be used as decorations for the occasion, and even the sword, which the emperor had given the duke, was worn by one of the performers. Sometimes the duke and duchess visited the prince and princess of Wales, by whom they were always treated with much distinction. The duchess writes enthusiastically about the princess and says that all the attendants at her court were so civil that she thought herself in a new world. The restless spirit of the duchess would not let her keep out of politics. Sunderland had now become head of the government, and she quarreled with him because he married a third wife. She managed to quarrel with most of her old friends, the Whigs, and even with Cadogan, and so annoyed them with her letters and her remonstrances and the violent views which she had no hesitation in uttering, that they were glad in their turn to give credit to a story of her having engaged in a plot in favor of the pretender. She justified herself with much indignation, and when she found that the king received her justification rather coldly, her antagonism to the court increased, and she entirely broke with Sunderland, who died in 1722, rather more than a year afterwards. On the 27th of November, 1721, Marlborough appeared for the last time in the House of Lords. He stayed the rest of the winter in London and in May went to Windsor Lodge. In June, he was stricken with a violent paralytic attack. He lived for some days afterwards and was quite conscious, so that the evening before he died, prayers were read to him, and when the Duchess asked if he heard them, he answered distinctly, Yes, and I joined in them. The following morning he died, quite calmly, at four o'clock, in the seventy-second year of his life. His body was embalmed and taken to Marlborough House, where it lay in state. The funeral was celebrated in Westminster Abbey with great magnificence. Military bands preceded the cavalcade, followed by a detachment of artillery and a large number of officers who had served under him. The coffin was placed upon an open car, and on top of it a complete suit of armor, and above it a splendid canopy adorned with shields and military trophies and banners to illustrate the battles he had won and the towns he had taken. The coffin was followed by a large number of the aristocracy and an immense train of carriages. The service was performed at the abbey by Bishop Atterbury, amidst a vast crowd of spectators, and the body was temporarily deposited in Henry the Seventh's chapel. After the nation had in this way done honor to the memory of the great general, his body was taken to the chapel at Blenheim, and the Duchess caused an elaborate mausoleum to be erected over it by Ricebrack. 
so passed away the great man who for a while held the destinies of Europe in his hand. He has been in turn held up for the most extravagant praise and for the most pitiless blame. In reality, it is equally absurd to make out of him either a spotless hero or a mean traitor. It is impossible to explain away his faults, which are of a kind for which it is hard to feel any sympathy. But on the other hand, it is impossible not to be impressed more and more by his great qualities the more we study him. His military genius is sufficiently displayed by his astonishing career, and as a diplomatist he was equally great. He could manage men as well as he could manage armies, and in the same way could rule himself. In the midst of the bitterest provocations, of the deepest anxiety, of the most terrible excitement, he always remained calm and dignified. No one could ruffle his serene temper. No one could resist his winning courtesy. Lord Chesterfield gives him as an example of perfection in the art of pleasing. In a dissolute age, he remained a pure and devoted husband, enduring with patience the overbearing temper of his wife, without allowing her to influence him unduly in important matters. He was a tender father and a true and faithful friend, as the long years of uninterrupted friendship with Godolphin prove. Free himself from the vices of drunkenness and swearing, then so common amongst the very highest classes, he tried to make his soldiers sober and well-behaved. His camp was clean, quiet, and orderly, and his soldiers followed him with implicit trust and confidence. He cared for them in all circumstances, and his correspondence is full of instances of his desire to lessen as much as possible the sufferings of war. One little trait of his thoughtfulness for others is especially pleasing. He had a letter sent him from a young lady who was in love with a certain Comte de Lyon, then in England, and speaking of her in a letter to Godolphin, he asks, as I do wish from my heart that nobody were unhappy, that the young man may have leave to spend four months in France to visit his lady. All his affairs were always arranged with the utmost order. His soldiers were regularly paid, and he insisted that they should pay for all their provisions and allowed no plunder. As a politician, he tried for some time to play an impossible game. He hated party squabbles and intrigue, and utterly disliked the way party conflicts were carried on by mutual revilings, suspicions, and accusations. For many years he hoped that it might be possible to belong to no party and govern without party. But it was in the party intrigues of those days that party government first took root. It came as the natural growth of parliamentary government and was fostered by the spirit of self-interest which the Jacobite struggles produced, which made men lose sight of the good of their country as a whole, in the desire that their party might triumph. The political atmosphere of the times fostered Marlborough's bad qualities. He, like everyone else, sought primarily his own interest, and so became a traitor to James II, a traitor to William III, and would have been a traitor to Anne, could it have served any purpose? Self-interest and the love of power and money were the chief motives that actuated him. But besides these, 
he was urged on by the consciousness of the danger of the power of Louis the Fourteenth, which he had learnt from William the Third. He raised England, abased by the servility of Charles the Second, to the position of the champion of European liberty, and led her again to play a leading part in European politics. Marlborough's greatness must be judged by the work which he did and the way in which he did it. The greatness of his work is not diminished by the fact that the motives were not entirely worthy. Marlborough left behind him a great fortune, which proves the care with which he and the Duchess amassed money during the years of his power. By his will he left the Duchess £15,000 a year for life, as well as Blenheim Palace and Marlborough House. The remainder of his money was left to his different grandchildren. His eldest daughter, Henrietta, Duchess of Montague, succeeded to his title, but as both she and her son died without issue, the title passed to the children of the Countess of Sunderland. Her eldest son was dead, but the second, Charles, became Duke of Marlborough in 1733 on the death of the Duchess of Montague. Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, lived for twenty-two years after her husband, and died in 1744 at the age of eighty-four. Her wealth attracted new suitors, and in the first two years after the Duke's death she was asked in marriage by Lord Coningsby and the Duke of Somerset. She replied by saying that she would not allow even the Emperor of the world to succeed in that heart which had been devoted to the Duke of Marlborough. Sarah, with all her faults, which were but too evident, had her good qualities too. She was a devoted wife, and though she often plagued her husband, it was only because she wanted him to play a great part in the world, and thought her way must be better than his. We hear a great deal about her faults, but she must have had her charms too, to keep the heart of the Duke, both absent and present, so unalterably true to her. End of section 39. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D. April 26th, in the year of the plague, 2020. End of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton.